Over the past two weeks, uh, we've learned that believers are saved by God's grace. So what should our response to the Old Testament law be? Do we ignore it and say we're under grace, or is a believer still bound to obey its commands? If we are bound to its commands, what commands have been fulfilled and what are still binding? I mean, are believers obligated to celebrate certain holy days, feasts and fasts? Are we to abstain from eating certain kinds of meats or wearing certain fabrics? Do we still need to repay injury for injury? And how do the Ten Commandments fit in all this? Well, in the day scripture passage, Paul teaches the Ephesian believers that the law has been abolished. But what did he actually mean by that? To be honest with you, this is an extremely difficult passage, and I've had some trouble with it this week. And I've been praying that God will keep us engaged and give us clarity and help us to understand what he wants to tell us through it. Because it has. It's been very hard for me. Well, last week we learned that Paul experienced grace personally, right? He was Saul. He persecuted the Christians. He didn't deserve it, but God chose him to be a minister to the Gentiles. We also learn that Believers will be persecuted, and that we need to be prepared for persecution. We learn that God has a personal plan for each one of us, and that it's our responsibility as believers to ask God, to seek God, what his will is for our life, and that in that plan, there's daily assignments. We need to be attentive and listening so that we can say yes to the Lord and complete those assignments. Well, if you have your Bible today, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 14 through 17. Then we're going to read in chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. And then we're going to read 16 through 19. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in in his flesh, the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Now let's look at verse 6 in chapter 3. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs with, with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. He, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made, to, or should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. 
All right, let's jump down to verse 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the full measure of the fullness of God. Father, I agree with Joplin this morning. Lord, I'm inadequate. I feel inadequate. Would you empower me with your unction to speak your word? Lift your word up high so that we're all drawn to it and we fall deeper in love with it. You are your word. (laughs) That's who you are, the word of God. We commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So in verses 11 and 12, Jesus makes Jews and Gentiles one holy temple. And he says in verse 11, remember. Now this is easy to read over if you're reading the scriptures, this word. It's easy to ignore, but it is a command. He says, remember. Think back, retain in your memory who you were before you met Jesus. And this is important for us. Never forget who you were before you met Jesus, where Jesus brought you, how he saved you. Keep this memory of God's grace fresh in your mind. He says the Gentiles in the flesh, meaning that the Gentiles lived in sin, they cared nothing for God, that God called, or that the Jews called them uncircumcised. And this was a derogatory term. See, the Jews boasted, we're the circumcised. We have God's covenant through Abraham. We're God's favorite people. And they used this ceremonial rite to insult them. I mean, even David did it, right? In in 1 Samuel 17, 26, David said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? You know, this was normal behavior for the Jews. And Paul encourages the Ephesian believers. He says, even though the Jews insult you like this, circumcision is done by human hands in the flesh. It's just a ceremonial rite. True true circumcision is of the heart by the Holy Spirit. Then in verse 12, he says, remember again. And he mentions five ways the Gentiles were far away from God. He said, first of all, you were separated from Christ. I mean, think about it. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He came to save the Jews. Then he said, you're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were ineligible for the rights and the privileges of God's people. He said, you were strangers to the covenants and promises. You know, they couldn't, as Gentiles, we couldn't begin to really understand the depths of God's law. They had no hope. There was an atonement for a Gentile's sin under the ceremonial law, and they were without God, literally the way to God was closed. 
The law, the ceremonial law taught to get to God, you had to be Abraham's descendant. So in verse 13 through 16, Paul says, but now, but now, the Gentiles are brought near to God through the blood of Jesus because he has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. So what was this wall of hostility? Well, Paul was pointing their minds to the temple, to the temple in Jerusalem. See, the Gentiles were literally physically separated from the activities of the temple by a wall. They were welcome to come to the temple, but they had to stand in the outer courts and pray. In fact, the Jews were so hostile to the idea of Gentiles being in the temple that they even inscribed on the wall signs that said, if you dare to come into the temple, you will be put to death right on the spot. Can you imagine the hostility? This is what the Gentiles saw when they went to worship. Now, there was another way, too, that the Gentiles were separated from God. And this was through what was called the Jewish ceremonial law. See, the Jews were chosen, but the Gentiles weren't. The Gentiles had no part in God's covenant promises. They weren't descendants of Abraham. God gave the ceremonial law to his people, not the Gentiles. And what was the ceremonial law? Well, it was this. It was regulations, rituals, appointments concerning just basically the outward worship of God. And it was based on ancestry, the ritual of circumcision, sacrifices for reconciliation and atonement, laws regulating eating clean and unclean food, fasts and holy days and feasts that were to be celebrated. And all of these things were required by God. They had a purpose. And the purpose of that ceremonial law was to set apart the nation of Israel as God's own holy nation. Well, the ceremonial law, unfortunately, had a negative effect too. It stirred up hatred between the Jews and the Gentiles. I, I found that this was fascinating. See, God gave Moses the law on Mount Sinai, and because the nature of the laws, the Jews understood that God hated sin. He wouldn't tolerate it. So the Jews named Mount Sinai Sinai because the word Sinai in Hebrew means hatred. Well, because God gave the Jewish people the laws, they concluded that God hated the Gentile world because it was full of sin. In fact, the Gentiles believed that their, or the Jews believed that the Gentiles' very presence in the land polluted the land. They were told not to intermarry, not to seek a treaty of friendship with them. In fact, even in the book of Acts, Peter hesitates to go to a Gentile's house because he says, according to the law, we're not supposed to go into your house. I hope you're getting the idea of hostility this morning because this is tense. 
This is some tense hostility between two people groups. Imagine, imagine what the Jews thought when Jesus said, for God so loved the world. Boy, that would have shocked him to the core. No wonder they were angry with him. What a radical thought. See, the Jews believed God was against the world. He could not possibly love the world. It was full of sin. Well, the ceremonial law also puffed the Jews up in pride. They took such pride in these, in these rituals. You know, really, they were the only people on earth that possessed the knowledge of salvation at the time. And they were very proud of it. Now, it wasn't just the Jews that hated the Gentiles. The Gentiles hated the Jews, too. It was a two-sided coin. The Gentiles called the Jews the enemies of the human race. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Being called the enemy of the human race. And think about it. I mean, they, they, you can understand it because even those who desired to know God couldn't. Every time they went to the temple, there's the sign that says, if you come near to God, you're going to be put to death. I mean, deep, deep-rooted hostility. Think about the racial tension in our own country right now. You know, this is mild, mild compared to the hatred that existed between the Jew and the Gentile. And unfortunately, this tension, this hatred was caused by the ceremonial law. But now, Paul says, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Imagine for a minute the anger this teaching would have stirred up in a devout Jew. You know, no wonder everywhere Paul went, he either, he either left having created a, a revival or a riot. Paul was in essence saying, hey, Gentiles could now freely approach God. He was saying there's no need for the ceremonial law anymore. I mean, this would have infuriated them. The Jews weren't just going to let the Gentiles walk into the temple all of a sudden because Jesus died on the cross. They weren't going to give up their pride in the law. You know, the temple sacrifices continued almost 40 years after Jesus rose from the dead. It wasn't till the temple was destroyed in 70 AD that the temple sacrifices stopped. And Paul says in 17, uh, verse 17 through 21, though, that the Jews and Gentiles now could approach God in one spirit, that they would be joined together to become a holy temple in the Lord. And there's a principle here. 
Through his death, Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law and all may approach God. Let me say that again. Through his death, Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law and all may approach God. So what does this mean for us? We now worship God inwardly with circumcised hearts through the power of the Spirit and not the written law. See, we're not required to keep any, and let me say that again, any ceremonial laws under the old covenant. We're not required to be circumcised. We don't have to worry about animal sacrifice, clean and unclean foods, festivals, holy days, and fasts. Now, there might be some benefit to being circumcised, to celebrating a feast. I'm not saying that, but we're not required to. These things have been fulfilled by Jesus Christ, and they have been abolished by his death. So what about Israel's civil laws, right? All the laws that God gave Israel to help them govern their nation. Are we required to keep those? No, we're not required to keep Israel's civil laws. They've been replaced by grace. And thank, you know, thank God. Thank God that we don't repay injury for injury anymore, right? Thank God we don't stone adulterers anymore. See, we're under a new law. We're under the grace law, not the law of the written code. Well, so what about the Ten Commandments, God's moral law? Are we required to keep them? Absolutely yes. See, God's moral law transcends all races and all time. God's moral law is just as binding today as they were then. It's binding every person from every race throughout all time. And the truth is, is on judgment day when everyone stands before Jesus Christ, guess what you will be judged on? The Ten Commandments. You will be judged according to those commandments. And thank God for grace because each one of us in here has probably broken almost every one of them. See, the Ten Commandments are the Bible's most fundamental moral guide. They were written by God's own finger. I mean, talk about how important they are. God, with his finger, inscribed them on stone. They're extremely important. However, the New Testament, though, is also a law for us. I mean, think about the commands in the, Old, in, in the New Testament. Submit to governing authorities. Don't be unequally yoked. Don't slander one another. Don't repay evil. I mean, this is just a few. See, we need the written commands through the, we need the written commands because it's through the law we become conscious of sin. Now, you all have heard it. People will say, well, I'm under grace. I'm not under the law. You know, this doesn't, doesn't apply to me when Paul said don't slander one another. I'm under grace. How foolish. Can you imagine what the body of Christ would be like if we all followed our loving hearts? You know, and we all just did what we felt like was right. 
that we had no written commands. We are still bound to the written commands, the moral commands of the Scripture and in the New Testament. They make us conscious of sin. Well, in verses one, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, Jesus makes all people one through the gospel. He says in verse 1 that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles. And this is true. I mean, he's under house arrest, waiting for his trial by Caesar. So it's true that he is a prisoner for Christ Jesus, but he's saying something more, something deeper. He's saying, I'm a bondservant of Christ. He sees himself as Jesus Christ's slave. See, Paul wanted, Paul, Paul knew that he was specifically chosen for the purpose of ministering to the Gentiles. And he wanted them to know that God loved them. And that for their sake, God chose him to share this wonderful mystery. This mystery that now they could come near to God. He also wanted them to know that God put him in charge, gave an administration, a spiritual office, that God had given him this mystery by revelation and given him the wisdom and the authority to go out and preach it, to tell everyone about it. What was the mystery? It was this, verse 6. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, shares together in the, in the promise of, of Christ Jesus. And Paul calls this body the church, meaning the called out. And there's a principle here. All believers are bondservants to Jesus. All believers are bondservants to Jesus. See, if you're a believer this morning, you're like Paul. You've been called out for God's purposes. You're not your own anymore. You are Christ's slave. He is your master. You surrendered your rights when you received him as Lord. Galatians 2.20 says, For I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Oswald Chambers says this. It means daily surrendering to the supremacy of the lordship of Jesus Christ. It means breaking the hard outer layer of my individual independence from God and the liberating of myself and my nature into oneness with him. Not following my own ideas, but choosing absolute loyalty to Jesus. Don't you love it? Absolute loyalty to Jesus. Well, I was a Christian for many years before I understood the lordship of Jesus. I told you last Sunday, or two Sundays ago, that I was saved when I was five years old. And I was. I heard Jesus call me. I went forward. I received him. But it wasn't till later that I found out that he wanted to be my master, that he wanted to be in control of my future, and that he had a plan for me. And I tell you, there was a time in my life where even though I was saved, I had absolutely zero joy in the Lord. 
I felt empty, purposeless. I had no meaning in life. And I even asked myself this question. I I asked God this question. I said, God, I know you're in my heart. I know you live inside of me. Why don't I have this joy like I see in other Christians? Well, God brought it to my attention through a period of intense trials over about a year and a half that I had never truly surrendered. Yes, he was my savior, but he was not my Lord. As weird as that sounds. At five years old, you don't, you can't comprehend Jesus being your Lord. But he patiently waited for me to get to that point. And when I finally did, after yielding to him a relationship that I was intent, that I was going to hold on to, that I was never going to give up because this girl, boy, she was going to take the place of my dad and she was going to be my healing. And in this codependence, I wasn't going to let her go no matter what. And God said, oh, yes, you are. You submit to me right now and you let her go. Well, it was very difficult, but after a period of about a year and a half, I released it and bam, he filled me. Every area of my life, he came in, saturated me with his Holy Spirit. The joy of the Lord flooded me. And I understood, okay, that's the reason why they're so happy. See, you you won't ever know the joy of the Lord until you submit to his lordship. You can't. And I wonder if that's why many Christians, you know, yeah, they're saved, their sins are forgiven, they've received the gift of salvation, but yet they live these powerless lives. Well, in verse 7, Paul said that he was a servant of the gospel. I had to move fast. He was a servant of the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? The gospel is a message that anyone can come near to God. All people, no matter what race you are, you can be reconciled to God. If a person repents, puts their faith in Jesus, their sins are forgiven, and they have eternal life. And this isn't through the blood of animals or obedience to a ceremonial law. It's by Jesus' own blood. Think about it. He lived the sinless life. When he was up on that cross, like a sponge, he absorbed all of our sins into his body. Then he was punished by God for our sins when God poured his wrath out on him. He died in our place, rose again, leaving the sins behind in the grave, ascended to the greatest position of authority as both God and man, And this is the gospel. No other message makes people right with God and no other message makes people a part of the true church. In verses 9 and 10, Paul says the gospel was hidden for ages, in fact. But now it's made known. And God wants his church to reveal this gospel. This rich variety of this multifaceted wisdom, not just to this world, but to the satanic rulers in the heavenly realms. 
in the spiritual realms. And I got to think about it. Well, why? Why is that so important that they know the gospel? Well, Satan knew that there was only one kingdom on earth that belonged to God. That was the Jewish people. All the other nations of the world belong to him. But now, God has chosen people from every kingdom on earth, every nation, to make one eternal kingdom under Jesus Christ, and this is the manifold wisdom of God. Revelation 5, 9 through 10 says, you were, you were slain, and with your blood, you purchased God, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve God, and they'll reign on the earth. You know, I had to, I, I still couldn't get it. The word manifold, it's not a word that we use often. And I thought, what? Okay, what, what does this look like? Well, God brought to my head a, an exhaust manifold. And I don't know if some of you work on cars. I don't work on cars. My dad works on cars, and so sometimes I help him. He's very knowledgeable about that. But an exhaust manifold collects the exhaust from the cylinders and funnels it into one pipe. Well, this is a picture of an exhaust manifold. The gospel is similar to an exhaust manifold. The gospel reaches in to every nation, every tribe, every language, and it funnels them into one, into one kingdom under Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And God has chosen people from every nation, funneling them into this kingdom. And I want to show you because I, I looked it up and said, okay, God, what, what do you mean, people? Well, here's one, a believer in Pakistan. Here's another. Believers in Nigeria. Here's another. North Korea. North Korea, the most fierce place on earth to be a Christian? Yeah. 300,000 believers are in North Korea. Iran. Another place where God is building his kingdom. And here's another picture of a man from Iran. These are the people all over the world that the gospel has saved, that are now part of God's true church, that have been brought near through the blood of Jesus. Here's my principle. All people through Jesus may approach God with freedom and confidence. All people through Jesus may approach God with freedom and confidence. See, Jews and Gentiles now have equal boldness and access and confidence before God. I mean, imagine for a minute what it's going to be like to stand before the throne of God when we finally get there and we see multitudes of people of different races 
of different languages. Maybe they will, maybe they will even be dressed a little differently than we are. I mean, think about the variety. And what a wonderful, what a wonderful just experience that's going to be. This is the manifold wisdom of God, that his gospel would reach the whole world. Well, verses 14 through 21, Paul prays for the believers. In verse 14, he says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. You know, this wasn't the normal way Jews prayed. I thought this was interesting. The normal ways Jews prayed was standing up with their hands up like this. But Paul kneels in humility. And you get the idea that he's so deeply humbled by the gospel. When he considers God's eternal plan for the church and his place in that plan, you know, there's this, his deep love for the Gentiles, it just moves this guy to get down on his knees and give thanks. Well, how often do you pray on your knees? And don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not saying that there's a right and a wrong way to pray. You can pray standing, you can pray sitting, you can pray lying down, you can pray walking, jogging, you can pray in your car. But kneeling is a special prayer posture. It expresses several attitudes of the heart. I mean, think about it. Submission to God. When you're on your knees, you're showing submission. Adoration, humility, dependence. It, it aligns your physical body with your heart. If you haven't tried praying on your knees, try it. God will bless you through it. Then in verse 15, Paul says, whose whole family in heaven on earth derives its name. One church, one family. We on earth are united with the saints in heaven. Isn't that mind-blowing? That right now there's a worship service going on in heaven, and we're part of it. Our family, our friends who have gone before us, in heaven right now worshiping, worshiping God with us. And you know, I thought this, this was good because it also contradicts a false doctrine called soul sleep. And I don't know if you've ever come across that or not. Certain, <clears throat> certain um, religions teach soul sleep. That believers remain unconscious in the grave. We says, not only are we united with believers here on earth, but who are alive in heaven, but they're actually cheering us on. You know, what, you, you know what Hebrews chapter 12, 1 says? It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Remember last week we talked about a race? Think about this. Paul gives us the idea that we're running down on the field while our brothers and sisters in heaven are watching from the stand saying, go, go, don't you give up. You run hard, you run faster. You're gonna make it. And what a blessing that is. We have that cloud, we have that cloud of witnesses. 
In verse 16 and 17, Paul prays that they're strengthened in their, in their inner being so that Christ dwells in their heart through faith. And this is, this is Paul building the idea of chapter 2, verse 21, 22, where a believer is a, whole, is, is a holy temple. He or she is God's dwelling place. Now, I had to think really hard about this. What are you saying, Paul? Well, Paul knows that Jesus lives in them. You know, he said in chapter 1, you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. They'd been saved. He wasn't saying that they had to be empowered by the Holy Spirit for the Holy Spirit to live in them. He was saying through the power of the Holy Spirit that they might experience the reality of Jesus living in them. See, the word dwell means to settle down, inhabit, be at home, be a permanent resident. Paul desired that Jesus would be so deeply rooted in the Ephesians' life, so at home in every part of their life, that they would just experience it every day. That they would live in the fact that Christ, this knowledge, this experience that Christ was ever present in their life. This is called sanctification. It means being made holy and set apart for God's use. It's being transformed in the image of Jesus. It's when Jesus sets us free from sinful habits and gives us his love and his disposition, his his virtue. In other words, what Paul was saying was that through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, may God bring every area of your life into submission to Jesus so that you might experience the reality of him living in you. Now, can you imagine how wonderful that would be? I'm a work in progress. And you know, I find myself getting so busy with school, so busy with family, that a lot of times my faith starts to, to wane. A little bit. Paul says, let the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit go deeper and deeper and deeper in your life, cutting away everything from things that you put in front of God that are just busy to actual sinful habits. Let God cut them out so that you can experience the reality of Jesus Christ living in you. Then in verse 18 through 20, I've got to wrap this up. In verses 18 through 20, he tells us that the love of Jesus has dimensions. And this hit home. This, you understand? This, this was very personal to me. The love of Jesus is not a concept. It's real. It's substantial. It's a measurable fact. Paul says, I pray that you will know how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Jesus. He wouldn't have said that if it couldn't be measured. (laughs) Well, you're thinking, well, how do you measure it? You measure it by the cross. See, the cross pointed in four ways. Essentially, in every direction, God's love is wide enough to include every person. (laughs) Lord, thank you. I mean, think of a river for a minute. 
We judge a river by how much it covers, right? How wide it is. Think about that. The river of his love has covered my personal sins. And not just my sins, the circumstances. He promised to work out everything. All my circumstances according to his goodwill. And he covers your sins and your sacrifices. The river of God's love is wide. It's long enough to last through all eternity. I mean, ask yourself this morning, when did the love of God start towards me? How long will it continue? Will these truths measure the length of God's love? Jeremiah 31.1 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Wow. Wow. The cross is deep enough to reach the worst sinner. Philippians 2, 7, and 8 tells us how deep the love of Jesus goes, right? He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You can't go deeper than the humiliation of leaving heaven and dying on a cross. That's how deep the love of Jesus goes. He said, how high? Well, it's high enough to take us into heaven. And to see the height of God's love, ask yourself this, how high does it lift me? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good news this morning? Amen. See, Paul says you can know this love. It's not speculation. It's not guesswork. It's not feelings. It's not emotions. The believer can know the love of Jesus Christ as sure as any geometrical mathematical truth. You can know it this way. There's a principle here. Jesus' death on the cross is the literal measurement of God's love towards humanity. You struggle at times with the fact that God loves you? I do. That's when we need to take the ruler of the cross out, just give it some measurements. <laughs> 